let's close these. Good evening. I, I think most of you know who I am, right? And um, I'm going to kind of get right to it uh, tonight. Um, our class is a class um, regarding the ancient masters and what the masters were were talking about. And as you begin to um, to study these ancient masters of Chan, you find that they are really saying the same thing. They have their own style to say it, and oftentimes the masters will refer to what other masters have said um, and repeat it almost verbatim what they said, or in their own way they, they say it. This is the way that we have uh, of the spirit of Chan that it's carried forth. The words that the masters use each of them understands that the words themselves cannot convey the spirit of Chan. It, it's not in the words at all, and, and it cannot be taught. The only thing that the masters can do is implore the students to study and to contemplate and to, to make it their own, and rather than make it something that they are acquiring the words of the master they acquire the spirit of the master of investigation into mind. Every day we should look into this and to say, what is mind? Never thinking that we have a full understanding of what mind is, but the investigation, the wanting to look into it is what creates a habit energy. The habit energy of wanting to know, of wanting to, to resolve the issue. And the masters have talked about this in many different ways, but one of the most important ways that they've talked about this is by saying that we have to resolve this great uh, matter of birth and death. When we don't resolve this matter of birth and death, then the, the problem is, is that we cling to the idea of a, of a self or a life in being or, or a personality, an ego. And we want this ego to reach enlightenment. But the ancient masters, they all talked about this very moment, this very thought, this very breath is the Buddha. And that don't be confused about that, that this is not something that one acquires or tries to rehabilitate. And the self is kind of like this real um, uh, delinquent that 
we always try to say, okay, um, he'll be better. We'll we'll take care of him, and we'll we'll dust him off, and we'll rehabilitate him, and he'll be fine. And and you are always looking for the way of uplifting the self. And in doing so, you really can't can't get there because of the fact that the self is constantly changing. It's actually a phantom, an illusion. And when we try to to do that, we're looking at um, the wrong end. And uh, what uh, some master equated that like a lightning bug trying to illuminate Mount Sumeru. And um, and I'd add to it, not only is it a lightning bug trying to illuminate Mount Sumeru, but the light's on the wrong end. And so it's never going to illuminate anything. So we get to the point where we talk about the turning the mind's eye inward. So you'll hear that quite a bit in their, um, um, their treatises that they talk about turning the mind's eye inward. And we go, that sounds really cool, but what does that mean? What does that mean to turn the mind's eye inward? Now, as you hear me here, you're using a viewpoint of subject and object. But if you turn the mind's eye inward, then it is possible to see, or for me to see through your eyes, through all of your eyes collectively through all your minds collectively, to see that there's nothing that separates, not what one master said, that there's no space between the person's eyebrow and space itself. There's no gap at all. And another master that said that it is not the space between you and I, but the lack of space between you and I. And this is a very strong notion in the practice of Chan that when we look at things, we look at them from the viewpoint that everything is connected. Everything is, is the same. And as we look at this, the way we see it in this way is from the idea that if everything's connected, it's connected via the the mind, it's connected via the idea that there everything that we see is impermanent, but that's not enough. We understand things are impermanent, but that could lead to just simply being um, nihilistic. But our impermanence and our emptiness of, of, of things is much, much different. And I wish we had a better word for the notion of emptiness in English for the word sunyate. Because sunyate, uh, the Sanskrit word, it really doesn't mean emptiness like the way we think of emptiness, like there's nothing there. It's a very dynamic nothingness that's there. The nothingness of everything. When everything is connected, then there can be nothing 
to be said outside of it. So for instance, going back to your, I think it was geometry, and they had Venn diagrams, and they'd have a big circle, and then they'd have little small circles. And they'd say, these are part of this big circle. If you look at things in this way, and you see everything, these little small circles, they are part of mine. And even though they, they have a certain sub-value, ultimately they have the value of the circle. And, and the only way they have a value is being encased in the circle. And we were just looking at the, the drawings from Master Chi Chern with the circle, like that. And it's very interesting because uh, once one master um, was certifying this one student had uh, achieved uh, seeing his true nature and so when he said it, what is your understanding the student drew a circle with his fingers in the air and he said is there anything else and he grabbed the circle throws it away and the idea here is is that we see the fundamental aspect of mind which is this there's this emptiness but we don't hold on to the idea of emptiness so what we say is it's the emptiness of the emptiness that that there's nothing there so what happens is that when we try to use our cogitating mind our thinking mind and we we try to see what's there we we get to a point when you hear these phrases that they're irreconcilable with the idea of what you would perceive to be rational thought and some people will look at chan and say that's all gobbledygook that doesn't make any sense and actually you'll see that a lot in high level philosophers talking about chan and, and really missing the understanding of Chan and Buddhism and, uh, and, and the manner in which we look at things such as the true nature of mind and say, oh, this self-nature of mind, then you're, you're still doing what we call essentialism. And essentialism means that there's something there and that that, that something has an identity, a separate identity. But it's the very fact that that there is nothing there. So we can't really say there's anything there. But what we're really doing with mind is the best way to define mind is how it works. And it's one of the very first things Shakyamuni Buddha taught. Does anybody know how mind works? There's a highfalutin word I always use. Nobody? Pratisha Samapada. So Pratisha Samapada, anybody know what that means? Causes and conditions never fail. Causes and conditions never fail. Many a Chan master has said that that's the Buddha that there's nothing beyond that, that that's the Buddha. And when we look at things in this way, then we begin to understand, 
cause and condition never fail. This is what what mind is. This is what the Buddha is. Cause and condition never fail. Why? Because it enables us to realize mind. When we realize mind, not to understand mind, but understand how mind works. If we understand how mind works, it changes the whole game we're playing. So we're no longer playing the game. We understand that it's like a game of tic-tac-toe, which we go second. We're going to lose every time. So instead, what it does is it's saying, this is, what, this is how the game is played. If you get angry today, tomorrow more likely you're going to be angry again, and the next day after that. And people aren't going to like you. And people are going to run away from you. If you're friendly today, people will be friendly with you tomorrow. It doesn't fail. These things are all connected. And as they're connected, the only way this works, the only way it can work, is if everything is mine. If, if something is outside of mine, this rule, law of karma, would not work. It couldn't work. Because that thing, no matter what it was over here, would not, would not be subject to the laws of karma. And as a result of it, it would, it would, the whole concept of Buddhist theory would collapse. Because everything has to be within it. Let me tell you a story of a, a monk. Um, it, it was an abbot and, and one of his um, young monks, they were walking in the woods. And they came upon a cave and they found um, a fox who was dying. And when they walked into the cave, the fox um, was greeted the monks. And when he greeted the monks, the, the young monk was so, so, so shocked. This, this fox is talking. And, and, but the abbot did not, was not surprised. And he said to the fox, from what cause does it bring you to this condition today that you are a, a, a dying fox that can talk? And so the fox told him, once I was a monk, many, many lifetimes ago I was a monk, and someone asked me this question. And the question was, when one reaches the state of Buddhahood, is one no longer subject to the laws of karma? So what do you think? When you get to be a Buddha, do the laws of karma still affect you or not? You say, yes. and you say, no you have to speak loud. There's no you to affect. There's no what? You to affect. No you to affect? So then you would think that you wouldn't be subject to the laws of karma? Okay. Anybody else? Don't be afraid to talk. I mean, this is okay. So maybe this is just a, a last uh, deed of karma. A last deed? Of karma. Becoming. Okay. 
exclamation point at the end of the road. Okay, you're going to say something? Could his, could his, uh, his physical body still be subjected to the laws of karma, yet he himself being... You're taking the politician uh, <laughs> response. <laughs> okay. Yes, go ahead. I don't, I don't really know, but I think if everything is connected um, and causes and conditions never fail, then there's really no way out of that yeah. karma. See, what I want you to do today is not to think. I want you to contemplate like you're doing now. You're each contemplating in your way. And as you contemplate, you, you begin to see. Because what we're doing today is using these ancient masters to try to, to get a grasp of what mind is. If we do not know what mind is, why even bother to try to sit to meditate? You're, you're, you're going to get nowhere. You're just going to be paddling uh, in a circle. And so, so if you understand what mind is, you have a chance when you're sitting on the cushion. So, the, um, the master asked the, the dying fox, and he said, what was the answer that you gave? And he said that the, um, that the Buddha was not subject to the laws of karma anymore. So the abbot kind of went like, ooh. <laughs> And he says, and so the fox went, as a result, I've been reborn many, many times because that, that is what I taught. And so the, the, um, the lesson here is a twofold lesson. One is one of mine, and the second one is that whoever's presenting a dharma better not make mistakes. So if I come back as a smelly fox someday, then you'll know, oh, Gilbert, he was wrong. <laughs> no. So in any case, the dying fox said, please, you know, tell me what the, the, the real response should be so that I, I can be relieved from, from this karma. And so the, the master said that the Buddha is at one or is at harmony with the law of karma. And because it has to be that way, it has to be. It can't be outside of that. If the Buddha was outside of that, that would mean essentialism, that there's something that's separate from all of this other suffering and everything. But the Buddha mind is this very mind that you're using right now. It's the very mind of the patriarchs. It's the very mind of the Buddha himself. It's no different. The only difference is because of the fact that of our fundamental ignorance, we cannot see that. And as a result, we keep coming back and back. Therefore, we need to resolve this great matter of birth and death. And the great matter of birth and death is how mind works. So the idea here for us to look at things is to see them in a clear way. We see them in a way where, as I look at you, I understand, you know, that you are part of mine. And one um, master told a young monk, he said, he said, but Shifu, you know, you say, I, you say that I don't exist. He goes, but I see you. 
And, and the, the master said, but I don't see you. And um, in, in another way, what happened was is I, there was one retreat I went to with Master Shen Yang. And in this retreat, uh, at the conclusion, uh, people were talking about their experiences. And there was this really adorable uh, elderly man that just absolutely loved Shifu. And, and he said, and he was a Westerner, and he said, Shifu, he goes, I really hope that, that I die before you. And Shifu looked at him and said, why do you say that? And, and so he said, because if, if, you, if you die before me, I will feel so sad and I will miss you. And Shifu looked at him and, and he was like just listening to him and then he just looked at him and said, if you die before me, I shall not miss you. And everybody kind of like smiled and laughed a little bit, but it was the perfect response. It was the wisdom response. It does not mean that one does not feel for somebody that passed away, but we see it as clearly as it is. It is what it is, causes and conditions. And we see the things in this way so that we don't, we, we don't cling to them. So, so Shifu, in, in his, when he passed away, um, in his service, his funeral service, um, he made sure of, of several things. One of them was no stupas or monuments be erected to him. Because generally when a, a great master dies, they, they make a stupa and they do all these other things and, uh, um, in memoriam for him. And he ordered that his bones be crushed to powder. Does anybody know why? Shriya, right? Huh? Shriya stones. Yeah, there's a what's called shirlisi. There, there. Um, when when a master dies and they cremate, there's these kind of little pearl-like essences that are in there. Little, very incredible, and they. Um, there, they represent that that master's accomplishments. But Shifu didn't want his Shirlisis passed around because there's Shirlisis that are on tour all over the world. No, and literally they go on tour and people give respect to it. But Shifu didn't want to do that. Shifu was a, was a, a great practitioner and he didn't want anybody to attach to something like that. There goes Shifu, you know, his Shirlisis are there. Or people fighting over, I want a Shirlisi. How many would you want of you would want a Shirlisi, a relic of, of Master Shen Yang? You know, I want one. But then it would be contrary to what he was, he was um, teaching. And then he instructed that his, um, the rest of the ashes, then, or the, the ashes themselves, be placed in five unmarked graves in a public um, burial spot. And um, and I was there at there and, and participated in the in the, the funeral ceremony, and and Shifu's ashes were so finely ground that even as they're pouring them in, they were floating away, 
because it was it was like a fine fine talc part powder um, in terms of that. But his idea was not to, not to attach to anything. Don't cling. Don't cling to this idea of a life in being, because it was consistent with this that that everything is just mine. So when when Shifu passed away. Um, a year after afterwards, there were uh, somebody had sent out a, a kind of an email saying that you know that that we should give great respect for Shifu's passing into Parinirvana, and um, and so I sent out a, um, a an an email response to that saying that. I would like to, to, uh, to, I said, first of all, it's proper for us to give respect to our teacher. So understanding, we, we do give respect, but we give a proper respect. And then I said, well, I, I want to share a story with you for, that Shifu had, had told. And Shifu had told the story that said, uh, this one visiting um, master went to, to this one temple and as he was going through the temple, they were taking him along this corridor, and he saw a picture of, of someone. And so he stopped in front of it, and it was a, it was a picture of a monk. And, and he said, and who is this fellow here? And the, um, the, the, uh, the present abbot from there said, oh, that was our former abbot. He's passed on. So in other words, saying he's passed on, and the the master just looked at him and said, "And where did he pass on to? Where could he pass on? There's no life in being, no ego, no personality, no nothing. Where could he pass on to? He taught him the Dharma in that moment, and it's as clear as that. And you have to be clear about it. You have to be clear about it. And I got a email back from the person that initiated that who was a bit perturbed by what I, I had sent out. But what I sent out was Shifu's story. And I was giving Shifu's instructions. And all I did for him was I sent him a private email just going, shh, don't talk. And and um, but that's the difference. When we we have to be careful. I don't want to come back like a fox. And so my idea is teaching you correctly how things are. When we say we pass to Parinirvana, who in fact passes to Parinirvana? It's contrary to the way we do it. We say that. We can say things like that, that, that we pass, but not really because in the essence of it, by the Diamond Sutra, there's no personality, life and being, ego, nothing. We are just mine. But that's enough, that's better. It's like going, okay, you know, you're, you're a skateboard, but you could be like this Ferrari, but you always pick being a skateboard. And, and instead, I shouldn't put it in material terms, but it's hard to explain these things like that. Um, 
but in any case, the, the idea here is, is that everything is connected. And it's connected in two different ways. So what the ancient masters did, and we're going to get to some of the readings, but what I want to do is give you a little bit of a background so then all of a sudden you start seeing it in their writing, is the idea of, of uh, the two, two truths doctrine that came out of the Madhyamika school. Now, Nagarjuna came in and was looking at what the Theravadins were doing and the, and the Abhidharma. And the Abhidharma is very, very good. Anybody heard of the Abhidharma before? Raise your hand. Okay. Anybody read it? So, so. It's very difficult. It's very, very good. That Abhidharma is like a schematic to the mind. And the... Um, and it tells you how the mind works. But in the Theravadan aspect of the, of the Abhidharma, they relate and say everything is real. And so they look at everything as being real. It has to be real. It's, it's mind. Now, then there was another school called the Yogacara school. In the Yogacara school, they said everything is what? Anybody know? Consciousness. So it's called, ergo, the consciousness only school. So, and the Chinese call it later on, Shenwei Shulin. I don't know if I probably butchered the name a bit, but it's called that. And if you ask a Chinese that, they'll say Shenwei Shulin, and they go, oh yeah, I understand what that means now. Do you know what, what I'm saying? The consciousness only school? You don't know? Nobody? Okay. So, anyway, so in that school, they say consciousness only. Madhyamika school is here, and this is it. What's so incredible about Buddha philosophy and doctrine? It got hammered and hammered back and hammered this way and hammered that way and was forged very succinctly through all of these debates and all of these high-level theory in terms of what this is. And it's high-level. Abhidharma is high-level. The Yogacara school, and, and they're talking about the eight consciousness and everything. It's all high-level. Very, very high. And Nagarjuna school of the Madhyamika is the same. But what he came up with is saying, it's two. It's apparent reality, which is what we see here, and actual reality, which is what we see here. The only thing is, is that we don't see the actual reality and the apparent reality. We cling to the apparent reality thinking that's the truth. But the second truth is this other aspect of it. Now, later um, uh, schools uh, such as uh, Huayen school and the Tiantai school looked at it and said, ah, from these we see there's noumenon and phenomenon, which is kind of like saying apparent reality and actual reality, absolute reality, sometimes it's called. And it's saying that noumenon is what holds all of the stuff, and the phenomena is what is being held. So the other day, I, I was in... Um, a stereo shop 
and I was talking to the owner. And the owner is very interesting because he had all these little Buddha artifacts and different things all over. He doesn't know why he has them in there until I walk in to his shop and I start teaching him the Dharma. And he's totally blown away. He's home. All of a sudden, he's home. And he, he's so surprised. And I just said to him, picture an apple in your mind. And we've done this exercise before. You picture an apple in your mind. You see it? The apple? Now, don't look at the apple. What is it projected on? What is it projected on? It has to be projected on something. If it's not projected on something, it could not have an existence. But it's constantly changing. Your mind is constantly changing. You could put a banana in there now. And you put a banana in there. But what it's projected on doesn't change. That's mine. And everybody's mind works the same. That is the Buddha mind. But causes and conditions create different phenomenal appearances. And that's what confuses us, and we think there's an individual self. But for that ability for, for something to be seen, then it could not. That is awareness. Awareness. It's aware of what is arising in mind. Where is mine? Here it is. What's arising in mine? I'm here. I'm here. You're clear about it. You, all right? You're clear. You're here. What's arising in mine? In this moment, you're clear. And you were coming to a wine tasting. Okay? And if you were, I'm sorry, but there's no wine here. Okay? Um, so, the idea... Is, is that cause and conditions don't fail. Everything fits in its way. Why? Because everything is connected. And this idea of Nagarjuna, of, of this, this apparent reality and actual reality, they fit together. They have to fit together or the whole model doesn't work. Hang in there with me because I know some of you are kind of going, like your wheels are spinning. But like the... the the one shopkeeper the, from the stereo shop, he was blown away. For the last week, he's been blown away in terms of, of me talking to him, and he's still bringing up the red apple because it was his time to wake up. And so he's been playing around, and I did meditation with him in his shop, and, and he still hasn't come down from it. From, from the experience. So cause and conditions are, are just in this way. So I said, do you think it's by accident that I came into your shop? No, it, it's just this way. And so he was very surprised, but this is how mind works. And when you see that, and we, you see the functioning of a person's vows to deliver innumerable sentient beings, it naturally draws you in this way to people. So we're going from these very high-level theory, but putting it into your everyday life 
and seeing how it applies in the everyday life. If not, then you just be some college professor spouting off this stuff. And most of the time when you read the college professors and the people who do their dissertations and some of the real fancy historians and stuff, they miss it. They actually don't get it because they don't understand this aspect. The difference is, is that they have not had a realization. And so they, they only see it from, from outside. And so it, it doesn't fit. When one begins to practice more, the things that appear to be inconsistencies, apparent reality and absolute reality, fit so, so tightly, so clearly, simply because one has seen it themselves. And the way I, I do it, and I've, I've got to get these pictures and bring them with me, but the, the way I do it is, is that they, um, oh, thank you, see, bodhisattva, mindfulness. Thank you very much. The way that you, you do it is, you see those pictures that are like a magic, I don't know if they call magic something or other picture, where they're squiggly lines. And then you have to look at them, and you look at them and look at them. And then all of a sudden, there's an image in there. Most of the time, it was those dolphins. <laughs> you know, I did see one that saw that, that was the Buddha, though. But, um, but in any case, you looked at it, and all of a sudden, you say, "Oh!" And you, it comes in very faintly at first. How many of you saw those pictures before? Raise your hand. And if you looked at the picture, you'd never be able to see it, right? I mean, like if you just looked at it the first time, you go, "There's no picture there." But somebody told you, keep looking, keep looking. There's a picture there. And you're like this, you know. I can't see no picture. I can't. Wait, wait, wait. You know, and all of a sudden you see like a little tail or something. And it begins to come in just a little bit. And you go, oh, there it is. And then you go, wait a second. There's not just one dolphin. There's eight dolphins and a mermaid or whatever else was in the picture. But it comes in like that. But if even if you see the little tail... You've seen something. You've seen something that in that picture, and that counts. That is something. That gives you the faith to go on. And what's really funny about that picture is that that picture is not separate from the other picture, right? The one that does, you can't see, you just look into it. And you look into the picture and you see the, this other part that you cannot even describe to people what's there because it's not describable unless they experience it themselves. And that is the practice of Chan, is that you have to contemplate, investigate, investigate, and then you get a little, a little glimpse of it. And then all of a sudden it pops in and it can be very deep. But the more you look, the deeper and deeper it gets, the more is incorporated into mind until there's no place that the mind is not. Everywhere you look, it's just mind. Shifu used to say, you're just swimming in it. Every day you're just swimming, swimming, swimming. You don't see it, but it's there. And he'd just be smiling you know, and laughing to himself because nobody got it what he was doing but he was seeing it he was swimming in the in the dharma every single day and so this is what we have to see we have to have that faith to be able to do it but we still need these fundamentals 
if you just sit on a cushion, you're never going to get there. You're never going to get there unless you know what you're doing on the cushion. Yeah. So we're, we're swimming in consciousness. Pretty much. And, 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 you know, then there are causes and conditions that, you know, like, like the weather uh, come and go and then, of course, the extent to which we get caught up in... Okay, let me, let me, let's use your weather analogy. Yeah. What causes wind? Do you know? The earth, earth's rotation part. Hot and cold. Huh? The hot and cold. Hot and cold? Okay, we have, anybody else? Well, you guys have to watch the weather more. <laughs> fronts, the movement of fronts. Yeah, high and low pressure systems. And the high pressure systems always want to equalize to the low pressure systems. Causes and conditions never fail. So everything is functioning in a natural way. As it is with the weather system, as it is with all things, and karmically they always want to equalize. The Bible says an eye for an eye, or a tooth for a tooth, and whatever else things are happening. But what we look at it and we see that these things are arising because of a previous cause. And so it's naturally happening in this way. If you understand that, when you sit to meditate and you go, I don't want to think of anything. Bad. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's the wrong way to, to meditate. If you're meditating in this way, it's wrong. And whoever taught you to meditate that way, they're wrong and come back like a fox. <laughs> when you meditate, the thoughts that are arising in the mind are naturally arising. Naturally. Why? Because they were put there. So if you have thoughts of work, you have thoughts of Fluffy the cat, your cat, or thoughts of, of Fluffy, your husband, or, or, or whatever, then, you know, all of those things that, that, that's a, like a Mexican joke. There's a comedian that says, he goes, I'm not fat, I'm fluffy. <laughs> He's made a whole career out of that joke. <laughs> so, so anyway, I'm not fat, I'm fluffy. But, but the idea is that those things are naturally coming up in your mind. There's no need to do anything about them because they're naturally arising in the mind. And so what you do is you take them to be your thought patterns. All they are is just a bunch of flopsam and jepsam on the ocean that's just coming by because of all the stuff that you've done from before. You just leave it alone. And you, what you do is it, use your awareness to see it. That which saw the red apple was not thinking, it was aware that a red apple is appearing in consciousness. No thought there, awareness. So when you're sitting to meditate, you're aware that the thoughts are arising. So sometimes we say 10,000 thoughts or a thought for, for, for 10,000 years. It means the same thing. It just means that if the thoughts are coming up, and they keep coming up and keep coming up, let them come up. It's all right. 
they're naturally there for you to try to suppress the thoughts is against the nature of it. And all you're going to do is you're going to be there like this trying to to, to push them down and they're going to be bubbling up all over the place and you're just going to become agitated. But if you go, hey, they're coming in because because of what happened before, you understand that. That's why. That's how mine works. That's how mine works. So whatever's arising in your mind's coming up because you put it there. Or you, you were involved in some kind of an event where, that was emotional or frequent. Um, that was there, that or uh, recent, and that's why those things will come up in your mind. Yes. So, so in terms of character, then someone's character, someone's temperament, someone, you know, is, is that just an accumulation over time of karma causes and conditions? Absolutely. Family environment, uh, cultural, or whatever, but but specifically more. Person's character. I mean, if they struggle with, with certain things, an addiction or depression or anxiety, or I mean, what is that just causing condition as well? Absolutely. There's there's neither sacred nor profane. It is what it is. The noumenon mind doesn't interfere with uh, things that are arising. It, it doesn't serve as a policeman to go around putting fig leaves on statues. Okay, it, it doesn't have that kind of a moral thing to it, but it has compassion. On the back end of it, with using wisdom, it has compassion to try to alleviate the suffering. But, it, but the mind, by its nature, doesn't work in the way in which we are like a, a sensor. It doesn't do that. And so neither are there commandments for a, from a supreme being. There are just simply vows and precepts that we take to help us break down this concept of this ego. So all of these things, they're rising in this way. There's many famous um, stories about this where, where um, one of them was the the, the monk went to the master and said, Master, help me. He goes, what's wrong with you? He goes, I have a very bad temper. And he says, well, show me your temper right now. And he says, I can't show you my temper right now. I'm not mad. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, but if it was your original face, then you would always be mad. So it's only from causes and conditions. Or you're at the ice cream store <laughs> and you go, I'll have a cherry vanilla. No, no, no. I change my mind. I'm going to have a, you know, coconut pineapple. You couldn't change your mind if if it was permanent. You'd always have to pick the same ice cream. But it's not that way. See, this is just this is what Nagarjuna did. Nagarjuna was very incredible because he did um, this practice of what was called uh, reducio ab absurdium, meaning you take things out to the most illogical extreme and say, if you think that time exists, then this and this and this and this, and because these things don't exist, therefore time doesn't exist. Boom. 
takes it away from you. If you think space exists, this and this and this and this, and if, it, if this is it, then boom. And he just went through, oh, now let's talk about you. You know, if you think you exist, this and this and this, no, sorry, you're out too. And he went through very high level. This is high level philosophy that just, just, just cuts through everything. And, and most Western philosophers would be like devastated within a minute talking to him. Um, because he was looking at things and seeing and saying, oh, why could he do that? Because he understood the absolute reality of it. Where other people were trying to make arguments in, in apparent reality, the absolute reality was, it's empty, sunyate. But not sunyate in the terms of like, there's no value, no nothing, but quite, quite the opposite, it is why I'm here. Because it does mean something. It means something to you, even though you go, well, well what good is that if I'm like a illusory sentient being? You know, why would it make a difference then? And so I was presented that question in Michigan from a young lady, and, um, and this was at the University of Michigan, and I, I, I went, I, you're a college student, aren't you? She goes, yes. I go, and you have um, a roommate, uh, yes. And I said, your, your roommate, if your roommate was asleep and you saw her thrashing around and her arms were going around, you could see she was plainly having a bad dream, what would you do? She said, of course. She goes, I'll, I'll wake her up. And I go, why? She goes, what do you mean why? I go, it's illusory. It doesn't exist. So why would you need to wake her up? It is how mind works. Mind has this compassion to go around and say, even though you're, we're delivering sentient beings of a non-sentient nature. And you go, huh? It's okay. Relax. We'll, we'll get to it. But you have to understand how mind works. And then as you begin to understand how mind works, it all fits. It, all of this philosophy, this Buddhist philosophy, is really, really a good construct. It's not made up where somebody says, well, you know, um, no. who, who made you do that? The devil made me do it. Or thank God, you know, or something like that where you're attributing whatever's happening to a supreme being, you know, like the Greeks moving little little uh, chess pieces around on a board. Or was that the Christians? I don't I remember. I lose track. But in any case, we take responsibility for what we're doing. And we should take responsibility because that's a very important part of our practice, that we understand what we're doing. So all of these things are part of our practice. And as we begin to understand them, we understand, okay, we've got to work on these habitual tendencies because those are the things that keep coming up. Those are the things that make us choose the wrong thing over and over again. Have you ever been locked in that in your life where you make a mistake and then you make the same mistake again? Okay, next time I'm not going to marry him. I'm just going to just it for a Sorry. It might have been a purse that you bought. Uh, okay. But in any case, those are the things that, that, that come up. They're patterns. And when you see the patterns like that, 
it's um, it's really really amazing. I once had an attorney that was working for me, and she married a man that that looked exactly like her ex-husband. Exactly like him, so much so that when she had him come to meet me, we were at, I remember we were at a Mexican restaurant, and he was walking in a military uniform. I was going, why is your ex-husband in a military uniform? <laughs> so much so that the ex-husband's father was so dumbfounded that he thought maybe he had a kid out of wedlock when he saw him. That, that not only that, but there were so many patterns of how many kids they had, when they had the kids, the dates, all of the different things. They, it was a, as if she had this broken husband, you know, with a bad chip and substituted another one with a good chip and put him in, into place. And it was really amazing when you see, that, that was about the, the most I'd seen of a pattern like that, a karmic pattern. But we all have karmic patterns like that that we do. And so, so when we see that, we become aware of how this, this world works. It, it's not enough just to understand theory. The theory is fine, but what we want to do is see how it works in our daily life so that we can, we can try to break our patterns, our habitual patterns. When we sit to meditate, we observe these habitual patterns coming up. Our concern of work, our this, our fear, different things that come up and we just let them go. And then they're arrayed on this mirror. And we let them be there. We're just aware of them. And the more we practice, the faster we see when a thought has arisen. And it seems as though that once we begin to see the thoughts as they're beginning to arise, they don't rise too far into the mind. Let's say if the mind consciousness is like this, and you have the thoughts that are there, if the thoughts, you, I use a proverbial jelly donut, and, and one has a habit of jelly donuts, boom, it's right there. And you can even spin it around like holographic. <laughs> no, no, it's a... It's a like a strawberry one or a lemon-filled donut, and it's right there, and you can see it. Later on, you don't attach to it. I found I have to be careful because I started attaching to donuts when I used them as examples. And then I stopped using them, and then I didn't, didn't get attached to them anymore. And uh, last time I went to Michigan, um, um, they even had a Krispy Kreme donut thing right next to my gate. So I'm standing in it. And I do have to say, I did linger there for a little bit longer than I should have. <laughs> but I didn't buy the donut, which was like the first step in the 12-step program on how to break <laughs> But it's a habitual pattern. And so you see these, these patterns, and so they, those big ones are going to come up in your mind, and they're going to be there really, really clear. But little by little, as you spot them coming up, you go, no, no. And, and, and you're aware of it, but you don't take the bait. You just become aware of it, and it's going, Krispy Kreme, lemon, no. And it goes away. It goes away. And it just keeps going away. And you, you, don't, you don't take it. Identify. Huh? You don't identify with it. You, you just see it as, it as the reason why it comes up. That's the thing. But there's no cogitation there. You, you're not thinking but you're aware and you allow 
the mind's own innate wisdom to see that. This is a really tricky part here. So I want you to be clear about this. There's not a rejection of it. There's just simply an illumination that goes through, not in the conscious level, but in the subconscious level, that that thought is arising and it's arising perfectly in mind. It is not sacred or profane. You just let it go. And so as it's coming up, it's perfectly arising. It's a non-defiled thought at that point. But if you bring that thought to the center stage in the, your consciousness, it's a defiled thought. Okay? It, it's a thought, but only in your imagination it's defiled. Ultimately, it's just mine. It's just mine. The donut is innocent. It's innocent. I, I once had a man who came... I don't know why I'm on a, a story kick today, but I had a, a, a client that came in and we called him the cookie man because every time he came in to see us, he brought cookies. I have no idea why he brought cookies, but he would bring cookies in. Here's cookies, you know, and they're good cookies, you know. Finally, I had to tell him, don't bring in any more cookies. I was telling him in Spanish, you know, saying, don't bring any more cookies, you know. The, the cookies are making us fat. And he said to me, the cookies do not get fat. And in other words, saying, you know, they, they're not the responsibility. It's kind of hard to, to translate it into, into English because he's saying the cookies don't get fat means no engordan. It's a double entendre, meaning in, in, in Spanish, no engordan means you don't get fat. But, but what he was saying was is that the cookie isn't the responsibility. It's you putting it in your mouth. That, that causes you to get fat. And so, it, the reason I'm bringing that up is because the cookie's innocent. The, the Krispy Kreme donut's innocent. It's like your attachment to it is what's causing that. And so, again, that's neither sacred nor profane. It's just the way it is. It's just causes and conditions functioning perfectly. And if you understand that, and you understand that there's a crank to the mind. We don't, we don't know that. We don't know that there's a handle there, you know. And we're going like this and we just keep churning out baloney on the side. We're turning the thing like this and putting stuff in and baloney keeps coming out. Why? Because we put the baloney in on this side, you know, the ingredients to make baloney over here. But if we understand how mind works, then you understand if you put wholesome thoughts, if you do wholesome things, then wholesomeness will come out on this side. Not bad. Not bad. But if you don't understand that when you're sitting to meditate, you'll never get it. But wholesomeness here is not like a sugar-free Krispy Kreme donut. <laughs> <laughs> but people want to try to do that. They try to, to spruce up the self and make it look good, like I was saying, you know. And it's like a delinquent. You go, he still has a black leather jacket on, you know, and he's got all those things all stuck all over him. You know, and you want to say, oh, he's okay now. No. The thing is, is the wholesomeness is not attaching. 
So 20,000 Krispy Kreme donuts could, could rise and fall and rise and fall, and as long as one doesn't attach to them, they're not going to have an effect. They'll just eventually dissipate. They become smaller and smaller, less frequent, less titillating to the senses, to the point you can stand in front of a case and look at them and not buy one. One day I'll just pass by. That's like the fifth step. But in any case, the whole idea here of what I'm saying is, is that we want to try to understand how this mind works. If we don't do that, it's not gonna it's not gonna pay off for us. So far, any questions? No questions? Okay, we continue on. So in in our um, how long will we go for today? Until eight thirty? Huh? Eight thirty? Eight thirty, seven thirty now? Okay. Do you guys need a break or are you okay? Huh? I'm talking, yeah. You're right. All right. If you need to go to the restroom, just quietly go out, you know, and if you have to go. That way, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just keep working through this. Um, I haven't even got to the starting point yet in my notes. <laughs> that was all a preface. But that's the way Chan is, is because Chan is very dynamic. And that's an, an important aspect of our practice is an understanding of Chan is that it's not passive. It's proactive. It's very, very proactive. And, and when you see how it works, it, it does the things that are necessary to do. And it doesn't try to get any acclaim for it, any thank yous or anything. It just does what it, what it has to do. So. That's why I'm here. I got on a plane, I'm here, I'm talking to you. Because that's just the way it works. So, the idea in, in our practice, and I'm gonna run over a few things, and we've already talked about a few of them, as to what shows up in the, the teachings, is the idea of subtle wisdom. Subtle wisdom is really important because it really relates to your meditation as well. The subtle wisdom is that which after a while, when you begin to see that the thoughts are arising, there's even more subtle thoughts or sensations or urges. Have you ever wanted something and you crave for it, crave for it, and you got it, and then afterwards you start craving for something else? That craving is also illusory. It's a habit energy that you built up that you like to crave. You like to, you want something. I wanna, wanna, wanna. And so you're always looking for it and when you get one thing, that's satisfied, but that I wanna is still there. And it wants something. It's looking for something. Kind of going, oh, let me see what I'm gonna go through. And it's going through the, all the whole, you know, files to find what it can want. All right, you have this one, check. I got that one, check. Oh, I could do this. And that's what wants something even better, newer, faster, uh, whatever it's going to be, fancier, more stylish, whatever. And, 
And so it's wanting that. And if it gets that, it's going to go again because, because it's there. But you can't see it. You can't see it. And here's the part. Hang in there with me on this part, okay? Because it's very, very important. When you're meditating or you're thinking of something, there are times when something is on the periphery of the mind and it slowly starts moving its way towards the center. Anybody have any cravings that they had recently that they got? What did you get? A hot dog. A hot dog. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, I'm afraid to do this because she's going to start eating more and more hot dogs. So. <laughs> then we'll see her at... I finally got it today. All right. Um, I've been craving it for uh, all week. And <laughs> my friend from work, she usually we take walks. And today she told me she's going out to lunch with a different friend. And she and I said, well, where are you going? And she said, where are we going? And uh, she's asking the other friend. And then she's like, well, we're either going to go to the hot dog place or Remy's, the deli. I said, okay, if you go to the hot dog place, bring me back a hot dog. She brought me back a hot dog. Yeah. Don't be surprised because I saw Zen Master buy a, a hot dog. And when the hot dog vendor asked him what does he want, he said, make me one with everything. <laughs> Sorry. That's, that's, that's exactly what I <laughs> So anyway, the idea here is this. Is, is that that hot dog's on the periphery and it starts moving towards the center. It doesn't move towards the center of your mind by itself. There's something that's pulling it to the, to the center. And that's the craving. That too is part of consciousness. We just can't see it because it's formless, colorless. But it pulled it towards the center. You're looking at the hot dog, like I was saying, you know, the, the cookie doesn't make you fat. And, and, but the hot dog's coming because you, you're seeing it there. But the thing that's pulling it is your craving. I gotta, gotta, gotta. Okay. So when that hot dog comes, then the, the, what you have to see is that what pulled it there is just kind of like in, in astronomy, they have the idea of a, of a black hole. Anybody not know what the black hole is? Okay. So we all understand, hopefully we understand what a black hole is, is this strong gravitational force that's so strong that it blocks all light. It sucks in all light, so you cannot see it. But you, can, you know it's there because of its force on other items. And this is how you see these subtle thoughts in mind, is that you illuminate the mind and go, how did that hot dog get there? Look, the hot dog's traveling through the mind. It's coming closer and closer and closer. <laughs> but how, it doesn't have a rocket on the back end of it that's propelling it. How is it doing that? So you're looking at it like the astronomers are looking and go, how did that star move that way like that? They go, there's got to be something. Look, and there's one coming this way and there's one coming that way. And you begin to understand how mind works. So the gross sensations, the gross images, I'm not saying your hot dog's gross, I'm saying the, the, the gross I mean by the things that are clearly visible, those are gross, those are big ones. They're not the quarry. The quarry is, is understanding and seeing these 
subtle habitual tendencies that are coming up. You cannot see them, but you have to, to use your illumination of the mind to spot their effects in the mind. And as you spot the effects in the mind, then what happens is you begin to see how they affect other things. And so um, in the Abhidharma, they'll refer to them as concurrent causes. No, because of this, this comes up and this comes up and these things are all working together to pull this hot dog to the front because you're hungry. Your friend is, is telling you about the, this hot dog and you're, you have this craving. And then all these things, but there's that also that craving. And, that, and that's those subtle movements. Those are the most insidious in, in the mind because we have to illuminate those. There is a way of, of seeing those, not with, them, with our eyes or our consciousness, but with the mind's eye of wisdom to illuminate what's happening in mind. The subtle movements in mind very very subtle movements so you guys can all by by tomorrow you're going to be watching the thoughts arising in awareness and then you start moving towards these subtle changes in the mind these very subtle wisdom and those are the ones that are are very very important to to pull out let me see here um i want to read you a couple of things now i'm going to the books In subtle wisdom, listen to the first uh, stanza of, of um, the Song of Enlightenment. Have you not seen the idle man of Tao, who has nothing to learn and nothing to do, who neither discards wandering thoughts or seeks the truth? So he doesn't try to push out the thoughts. He doesn't try to say, can, can I turn this baloney into realization? You can, but but not by by the ingredients of the bologna, but understanding what what went into the ingredients of the bologna. The real nature of ignorance is Buddha nature. Listen to this. You're going, what the heck is he talking about? The real nature of ignorance is Buddha nature. Now before we started this class, you'd have no idea what that meant. I'm hoping one of you, just one of you, knows what that means now. The real nature of ignorance is Buddha nature. Anybody know what, can say what that means? Nobody? Go ahead. No, I was going to say what, 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 what we think. What we think? It's... It's all Buddha nature. It's, it's how we think about it. The value of that thing. Okay. I give you partial credit for yeah. that one. <laughs> that which can be told, that which can be named, is is illusion. Anybody else? Yeah. My opinion. The. The way how the ignorant coming to being uh, has the same characteristic of the how Buddha nature 
coming to be. Partial credit. <laughs> if you guys got together, you'd get a full credit. But you almost had it. You almost had it. Keep, keep going. Okay. So, um, what did you miss? Just think about what you missed. Go ahead. In my understanding, the ignorance, ignorance not in the way of dismissing, but in the way of detaching. Of the action. Okay. In the way of the action. But where is the ignorance appearing at? It's all in the mind. It's all the mind. So when they say the real nature of ignorance is Buddha nature, because causing conditions never fail. If you do something stupid, you're going to do another thing stupid because that's what you've been doing. <laughs> it's like, who said that? It was a very famous philosopher. Stupid is as stupid does. <laughs> Just from Forrest Gump. <laughs> it's also the, the, the phenomenon within the that's right. It, it's the all so. So where you made the mistake was that you said we're the same place. Buddha nature comes. Buddha nature is what they call the unborn or the uncreated. So there, there's no. The noumenon is noumenon. There's no beginning, no end to it. Nobody can ever begin to say where the noumenon started. So that it's what we call the uncreate or the unborn. So that that is not a thing. So you cannot equate it to a thing. So if I left you that way, it would have messed you up. But if you understand that ignorance is arising in mind, whether ignorance is arising in mind, there is no ignorance, no ending of ignorance, through to no aging and death, no ending of aging and death. We have no fear. We have none of that. So that's from the Heart Sutra. So we understand that because all of this is what we call the Tathagatha Garbha. Wow, new word for you guys today. Tathagatha Garbha. The Tathagatha Garbha is the Buddha womb. And this, these words came um, from the Tathagatha Garbha sutras. There were some certain sutras that came later on that were much more sophisticated in their, in their approach and they spoke to the Buddha nature. And so uh, where the, the Heart Sutra and, and all of the sutras of that type came, they were wisdom sutras. But the Tathagatha Garbha sutras were going, you have to see everything is just Buddha nature. It is just in this way. And the Garbha part means womb. So everything is within the womb of this. Sometimes people use it and say, to, to try to say, well, that means that we all have a little Buddha inside of us that just needs, to, just wants to come out. No, it's not that way. What it means is everything is Buddha. Everything is Buddha, and and it is just this way. That is, Tathagatha means thusness. Thus, it's just this way. The thusness of, of how mind is. That, that's all that Tathagatha means, the thusness, everything comes from mind. To know all the Buddhas of the past, present, or future, perceive that all Dharma Dadu nature is created by the mind. One um, Tibetan master, Sogo Rinpoche, um, huh? he said about, um, you know what a mantra is? How many don't know what a mantra is? Do you all know what a mantra is? Okay. 
He said the definition of a mantra is um, that which protects mind from mind. Does it begin a little clearer? You probably wouldn't have understood this, you know, an hour ago. <laughs> but you're beginning to see it. It it is all mine. And and if you approach it like this, when you sit to meditate, you guys are gonna do good. Because you, you understand where all the stuff's coming from and you understand you're using awareness, not thinking, to to do this. So it's very, very important. That's why he said the real nature of ignorance is Buddha nature. The illusory empty body is the Dharma body. So the emptiness is the Dharma body. There's nothing apart from it. And so it's it's clarifying in 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 a moment what this is, and that's the subtle wisdom that one uses. Shifu, in his book, Attaining the Way, said, Wisdom means clearly understanding that all compounded things are impermanent and realizing all things have no independent self. So all compounded things, we talked about concurrent causes and things that are aggregates. Um, and um, when we look at the aggregates, we talk about the five skanda. Anybody know what they are, five skanda? Anybody? Form, sensation, perception, and consciousness. And so uh, those, those are like all of the things that were compounded. Uh, form is the one that deals with matter, and the others deal with mental sensations. Yet we always concentrate on the form part, but we should also look at the mental sensation. All of those are, are empty, all the way through to consciousness. Consciousness is empty. There's nothing there, nothing permanent there. So when they started with the form part, to me, if they started with the consciousness, you know, they worked their way up to consciousness, but the consciousness is the key. Because when we see that that's empty, there's no place that one could establish an independent self, which is what he was saying, realizing that all things have no independent self. When you practice Chan, you contemplate the body and its actions, and you see they are impermanent. You observe thoughts coming and going, and you see that they are impermanent. You know that there's no fixed existence, no self, and thus you witness their empty nature. This is, when one is in a state of Chan, this is how you see things. You see things clearly as they are, so they do not affect you. They only affect you when you allow them to affect you, and you are yourself. And when you're yourself, then you mess everything up. Okay? Then you throw everything in the baloney grinder. You know? And so, so the thing is, is that you have to see that all of those things are there. But nevertheless, they're mine. All of these things, that's why they say, neither sacred nor profane, it is just all mine. It has to be this way in order for the model to work. So the theoretical model of how mind works can only work if everything is subject to the laws of cause and conditions. That's why the guy became a fox, because he missed it. And in fact, 
there's a teaching in the Theravadan ones it where the Buddha um, had a headache for three days. Anybody know that story? Have you heard of it before? No. He had a headache for three days because the villagers um, where he lived caught a great fish, a very, very big fish. And it was like a kingfish um, in, in um, the, the ocean. And when they caught this fish, they it was so big they couldn't eat it all at once. So they just kind of brought it to the shore and cut off pieces of it to eat daily. And when the Shakyamuni Buddha in a different lifetime, he came to the to the the fish and hit it with a stick three times. So he had a headache in as as a in his uh, lifetime where he became enlightened, he had a headache. So it's clear the cause and conditions they never fail. He still suffered that. His the villagers suffered a great thing. They he the guy came back reborn as a king and and destroyed the village. Just and uh, and there's another story to this. And and these are understand that these are stories, but they help you kind of understand what what's happening. That they what they represent. And that's that um, the, um, one of the Buddha's uh, disciples saw what was going to happen. And so he gathered up all the villagers in his palm. But when, when um, he opened his palm, all he saw was blood. And like I said, you don't have to believe these stories. What they do is they represent the, the, the fact that, that nothing is outside of the law of karma, the, what they call mind king. And, and so when you see this, you, you begin to understand how, how the things work. So that's what Shifu's doing here, and he's very eloquently explaining this in terms of, of what wisdom is. Because that's what we're doing. is we're, Wisdom is, is looking into and seeing how mind works. And when we use a subtle wisdom, that enables us to to see very subtle subtle movements of the mind. So he says, um, "This is engendering wisdom through contemplation. When we see things, we just see things as they are, and and we use our contemplation. Therefore, selfless wisdom is the great concentration that comes from being free from affliction." So this great concentration that comes from being free from affliction. We, we are here in this world, but we're fear from we're we're far from fear and confusions and imaginings. And so when we see the world as it is and we see how it's being played out, we take responsibility for the things that we've done. We understand, okay, these things are gonna come to us and we, we do our best concerning that. Practicing Chan does not give you an inoculation from from things that will happen in your life. It's never been that way. It may help you and um, and reduce some of the karmic forces around you, but it cannot remove all the, the major ones. If if you if for some reason you know you did something very serious, it, you it, you're still going to have to to pay for it at some point or, or another. There was a person that was a practitioner, but he was a, was um, very tricky. When when he passed away, he had done enough things for him to end up to going to to hell. 
So when he went to hell, he was aware he was in hell. So he just started reciting mantras. And they're going, so they went to the, to the, the king of the hell and say, what are we going to do with him? We can't touch him. He's reciting mantras, you know, and we can't, what do we have, what can happen? You know, and they go, oh, well then just send him back. So they sent him back and he died at birth. So then now they can have at it with him. So the, these stories, what they mean is this, and you, you know, you, you take them as they are, you know, um, and but what they mean is is that the when we say cause and conditions never fail, it's this way. It says form is nothing, not other than emptiness. Emptiness is not other than form. Form is what? Precisely, precisely emptiness. That's why it says precisely, because it's impeccable. It's clear. It doesn't fail. It doesn't fail. And whatever happens. In your life, you will see that in your life. It's not going to be like, oh, you know, that you're going to, to get something that, that, um, that, that you didn't earn, whether it's something good or bad. I mean, those things just come to you. And then you have to deal with them. I mean, we all do. I do, too. I have, like, a bunch of junk that I have to deal with all the time. You know, and some, when I'm Gilbert, you know, I suffer there. Uh, and when I'm not Gilbert, then I just see, okay, well, I take it, you know, just take it because that's... That's what's coming to you, okay? And you you take responsibility for what you put into motion, okay? Um, okay. Concentration in Chan is not a state where there are no thoughts in the mind. The mind is not just blank. In Chan, we avoid dwelling on forms and merge with the suchness of everything. And that suchness of everything, oh, he even says it right here. I was just going to say it, but let me have him say it. Which is called the Buddha nature, the Tathagatha Garbha. So that suchness or thusness, that's just the way things are. The ordinary mind attaches to phenomena and thoughts are stirred up by uh, forms they follow. The enlightened mind is neither moved by phenomena nor stirred by the forms. It functions freely but abides nowhere. So that's another concept that comes up all the time is this non-abiding, this non-abiding mind. So what it's saying is it's non-abiding. It doesn't even abide to the idea of the self. It uses the self, but it doesn't abide to it. If, if it was an abiding uh, mind, Gilbert would go, why do you want to go over there? You know, the waves are going to be good this, this Saturday. You know, wouldn't you rather go surfing? Oh, yeah, okay, I'll go there. You know, but then I'm abiding in the ocean. Instead, it just doesn't abide. It just goes, okay, it, it brings itself here, following function, following the function of the vow. Um, not stuck at a level of discrimination and infliction, this is the pure mind of wisdom responding to the myriad of things and giving each its due. So it looks at things and it sees them and, and understands how they're arising. And it, and it gives it its due. So if it needs to talk, it talks. If it doesn't need to talk, it doesn't talk. So Master Shen Yang used to say, you know, I don't like to talk. Personally, I don't like to talk. But I, I have to talk to teach the Dharma. But if it was up to me, I wouldn't say anything. No. And so he gives it its due. So when he needs to talk, he talks. When he doesn't need to talk, then 
for him, he his practice was such he didn't want to 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 talk so much. Okay, people used to always go to him and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, and and he'd say that they'd go to spill their garbage in front of him. No, and sometimes that happens. People talk and they have a problem and they 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 drop all of their stuff there, you know. But but the masters will listen to it as long as the people are interested in, in resolving the problem. If they're not interested in resolving, they just want to do woes as me, then, then they have no interest in helping the person. The, there was a master in San Francisco a, a while back, he passed away already, but a, a great Chan master named Shen Hua. And Shen Hua, he, he, uh, on Sundays, he would, he would give audiences to people at the temple. But after a while, when the people found out about it, there was like such a long line of people that wanted to talk to him and, you know, talk about all the, a lot of silly stuff and things that are happening in his life, in their life. So finally, then, then the next week, he, he went, okay, um, from now on, I'm not going to talk to you in, in private. Anything that you, you have, an issue that you want to talk about, speak at the microphone. So the, the line got very short. <laughs> because the people didn't want to talk about their private stuff there. <laughs> so, so, but I can understand that because it, 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 it can be very trying, um, you know, when people are, are um, contacting you and asking you for help. Nevertheless, no matter what, you know, you, you try to give as much help as you can. Okay, let me see. Where are we at? Oh, we're still okay. So, We've talked about some of these concepts of subtle wisdom, of life and death. Um, and just on the life and death, the master, uh, Zen teachings of Master Ling Chi, he starts out his treatise in this way. Those who study the Dharma of the Buddhas these days should approach it with the true and proper understanding. First of all, what he's saying is that you have to have the right view. You have to know how mind works. And he says, if you approach it with a true and proper understanding, you won't be affected by the considerations of birth and death. Meaning that the fears and confusions of birth and death, you will understand how all of these things work. Mind will teach you. It will. You have to trust me on that. If you practice seriously, mind will kind of begin to, I shouldn't say teach you, it reveal itself and it reveals how it works. And some of these things that are, appear to be very mysterious, they'll just pop up. And you go, oh, so that's how that works. And, and there's this subtle wisdom that arises from that that enables you to see how this works. It's just like the subtlety of the picture within a picture um, that it, it, it shows up. And, and it's very, very subtle. And, and when you're looking around at everybody, you see that picture within a picture, that you see sunyate in everything. And you see not just sunyate, not just emptiness, but you see the noumenon. What you see in the noumenon is how the noumenon works. That's why the master said, Pratika Samapada, cause and condition never fail, is the Buddha. That's, that's as far as it goes. It, it is the Buddha mind. And, 
and you go, well, isn't there more like like a Buddha that you know sits up on a throne and has all these these attendants around him and whatever, you know? But all of those are mind constructs. But all of those things are causes and conditions as well. So we see the things clearly that there is this Buddha mind, and we are part of it. The good part and the bad part are all part of it. So he says, you don't have to strive for for benefits. Benefits will come and go um, of themselves. And and he said, followers of the way, the outstanding teachers from times past have all have ways of drawing people out. I want myself to impress upon you that you mustn't be led astray by others. If you want to use this thing, then use it and have no doubts or hesitations. And no, if you want to practice Chan, practice it. But really practice it hard. He's saying, if you're going to practice it, practice it. You know, don't next day, you know, um, start practicing some other discipline. You know, and I have people call uh, call me up. I haven't talked to in 15 years. I'm studying with this master now. He's a Tibetan master, Misong. You know, and he's he's very good. And he's very this and very that. You know, you should practice with him. No, and and I go no. I'm I'm fine with that. But then I look up the stuff that on on uh, YouTube what he's talking about, and it's very simple. Of course, she likes him because it's so simple. But it, it it's not the essence of the teaching. No, but it just feel goody. So there's different types of Tibetan masters. Some of them are very good masters. And some of them are only so-so, so that they have two ways of creating the Tibetan masters. One of them you can practice in India for many, many, many years. Or the other one is you can practice there for like two or three years and then come to America. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've seen many of those. Um, I've seen some very good ones too. Um, He said, when students fail to make progress, where's the fault? The fault lies in the fact that they don't have faith in themselves. If you don't have faith in yourself, then you'll be forever in a hurry trying to keep up with everything around you. You'll be twisted and turned by whatever the environment you're in, and you can never move freely. This is really important because Shifu he was saying we are not twisted and turned by the environment, but we define the environment. So the difference is, is that a person who's twisted and turned is caught up in the idea of the self, but we create the environment. And you have to understand that's to know that all. Um, uh, Dharma Dharu nature is created by the mind. When you when you know that, that's a very positive thing because you can begin to be very positive in everywhere around you, and you make a little pure land around you because you can. If you don't believe me, try it. Just try it for a year. See, try to be very positive with everybody around you, and see if it doesn't change the things around you. It will change things.
But if you can't, if you can just stop this mind that goes rushing around, uh, moment to moment, looking for something, then you'll be no different than the Buddhas and the patriarchs. And he says, do you want to get to know the, the patriarchs and the Buddhas? And people, yeah, I don't want to know. Because they're not other than you, the people standing in front of me listening to this lecture on the Dharma. Students don't have enough faith in themselves, so they rush around looking for something outside themselves. But even if they get something, all they will get is words and phrases and pretty appearances. They'll never get at the living thought of the patriarchs. That's why I say, you've got to do it yourself. These words and the stories that I tell you, they're very entertaining, but you've got to, to contemplate, you've got to look at them. You've got to practice yourself and have faith that you can do that. You know, put down all these things, put down the idea that, oh, if Gilbert doesn't do it, somebody else can, can lead me to, to um, enlightenment. I, I have uh, one friend for years, she just keeps going from master to master, great master, and they're all good masters. But she's looking for that pill that they pop in her mouth, boom, you're enlightened. And, and so she'll never get there doing that because she's just looking and looking and looking. Shifu used to say it's like a kid going to a candy store and, and, and being able to bite this candy and this one and this one and this one and this one, you know, and all he ends up at at the end is just with a bellyache because the, they don't want to put the time in themselves to try to do it. There's 84,000 Dharma doors. Now, nobody really counted 84,000. It's just a statement that we say an uncountable amount um, of Dharma doors. So saying that in every moment, there's a way in. And so nobody has uh, an exclusive, uh, not, not the Chan practitioners, not Theravadan, um, not Pure Land practitioners, not the Tibetans, nobody. All of those have very good Dharma doors that they can do that. But you've got to pick one and practice it, and practice it well. Um, one of the things that we're going to talk about tomorrow, and it's just a preview for tomorrow, is that is elevating your practice to a world-class practice. Most of you, you know, um, your practice is, if it was like basketball, you would be like in the backyard shooting hoops with a dog. If that. Okay. If that. <laughs> so, so the thing is, is that we want to elevate the practice to world-class practice. You don't have to be a super athlete. Good. So you, you don't have to be LeBron James, but you can be the LeBron James of meditation because you all have the ability to do that. All of you have that ability to do that. You just got to bring it to the cushion every single time. But if you sit there and you go, okay, watching the breath, watching the breath. I wonder if I can eat a hot dog tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I'll go and get one tomorrow. Okay, I'll breathe the hot dog in. I'm breathing the hot dog out. And then you, you, you're not doing anything. Sorry, because it was just a funny one that you said you had. But the idea is this, is this, is, is that if you meditate, and tomorrow what we're going to do, 
is I'm going to switch it up on you. We're going to meditate for short periods of time. But I want you, you're going to have a, like, take a vow that you're going to meditate the whole time. That you're, you're going to really bring it and do it right. Because what I want to do is by the end of the day is have you meditating five or ten minutes at a time purely pure meditation where it you you are, are aware and you're just using awareness there and yet you understand that and so when you do that all of what I'm talking about today will be helpful because you understand you don't have to push the thoughts out the thoughts are going to come up you know they're coming up you're aware of them you just let them go they don't touch you I don't know how you know countless hot dogs countless whatever else is coming up they're not going to touch you they're not going to affect you at all they're just coming 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 up coming up you let them go let them go let them go and and that's the thing is that you you have to use what we call discernment so we'll do that tomorrow so that was like my little teaser for tomorrow okay in the in the sutras we talked about the that there is the they talked about the Buddha nature and the Tathagatha Garbha and they they use that against what's called nascent entrenchment and nascent entrenchment means something from the very very beginning that's entrenched very deep in and that's the concept of the ego or a life in being and if we cannot get past that ego or life in being then We'll, we'll never be able to meditate in the right way because we're trying to look for that enlightenment. But if we don't look for the enlightenment, but we're just simply looking to calm the mind via wisdom, that wisdom is, we use what we call our innate wisdom to, pr- to produce wisdom. And as we begin to produce this wisdom, because when you're sitting there and you're meditating in the proper way, you're a little wisdom factory. You're producing wisdom. Seriously, you're producing wisdom. The longer you stay on your method, the more you're going to be able to hold that method and and that you're going to see, hey, this all works. If I don't think of anything, nothing comes up. I don't have to think. And now I understand what no thought means. It doesn't mean that there's there are not images arising in the mind is that there is a choice I do not have to look at them and and think of them I am aware they're there but I don't have to to cling them or move towards them and that's wisdom and as you begin to use that wisdom that wisdom starts showing you what mind is made of until it gets to a point which is called transcendent wisdom and when you get to transcendent wisdom, the word transcendent means, okay, something's changing here. And this is like where you're inverting the eye inward. Transcendent means now you're using awareness to function rather than uh, thinking about things. And you're allowing your innate wisdom, coupled by the wisdom that you've accumulated by your meditation, and you're seeing things around, to govern what you're going to do, what you're going to think, and what you're going to say through body, speech, and mind. All of a sudden, this wisdom changes things, and and this transcendent wisdom goes, you know what? 
I don't see any of you. But I will help you from, you know, from your suffering. And it makes complete sense. That's the transcendent wisdom. So out of the transcendent wisdom comes compassion. That's important. This concept of karuna, compassion that comes out of this, it's a natural byproduct. So when you're doing this and you're putting the right thing in and you're putting wisdom through the grinder, as you're doing this, compassion comes out. Wisdom doesn't come out. Compassion comes out. Because the Heart Sutra says there is no wisdom, nor any attainment, only compassion. So when we look at the Heart Sutra, although it's a wisdom sutra, it's talking about there is no wisdom. Why? Because when we look at everything, all of that is Buddha nature. And compassion, this unbridled compassion, uh, and the manner in which it works is a component of, of Buddha nature. And, and the wisdom is actually just taking off the layers of obstructions that prevent the, the Buddha nature from manifesting properly. And when that's done, then the person is in a state of charm. And then they they, they act in a state of charm. And so this is really, really amazing because when we look at it and we see what the Heart Sutra is talking about, it's going, there's none of this stuff that's there. And I said from the last time, I think I was here or the time before, the Heart Sutra is really telling the Theravadins that there is no reality in the way that they're looking at it to anything. There's nothing there. There is no suffering, no cause of suffering, no cessation, suffering, no path. There's nothing. But when they're talking about sunyate, nevertheless, they're talking about the ultimate byproduct, which is um, the um, a bodhisattva. And which bodhisattva is talking about this in the Heart Sutra is Yin Bodhisattva. Not Manjushri who is related to wisdom, but Yin, because that is the aspect of our, what we already have within us is Yin. Don't look for Yin outside of your own, your own heart. And when I say heart, I don't mean your heart like your self heart, but, but look for Kuan Yin in your actions, in the way, in your, in what you're doing, and in your vows, and it manifests in this way. They have the statue, the Junti statue. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The Junti statue? No. It's a statue that has many, many hands. Oh yeah. What's it called? Junti. Junti. Yeah, but in Chinese. With thousand hands? Yeah. Thousand eyes. Alright. Trust me, it's Kajunti. Okay. Look it up if you don't believe me. But in any case, that is an artist interpretation of what we already have within us. All of your hands, all of your arms are Kuan Yin's. That there's no Kuan Yin with all those arms there. 
you're not going to go somewhere and you go, oh, here I am, I made it, you know. Quan Win will see you and she's going, hi, 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 hi. <laughs> it's not like that. It's, it's an artist interpretation of what we have within us. And, and so that's what's important. Because all of that, that's what the Heart Sutras say. All of this, of what these masters have been saying, I, I probably could go on for like a week on this. Because <laughs> um, I'm not getting anywhere today. Um, but the, the idea is that, that all of that's within us. And that, that's important for us because then we understand, okay, this is what we're doing on, on the thing. We're not sitting there saying, I am going to become enlightened, you know. So I, uh, early on, I, I had one student was that way, and I, I told him, next time bring a camera. And he says, why? I said, so that way when you become enlightened, you can take a picture of yourself. <laughs> and, and so he had that expectation, I want to, I want to become enlightened. When I'm going to become enlightened, I've been practicing for five minutes now. I'm not enlightened yet. So the, the idea of that is also a point, and let me, you know, let me finish with that, which is a, a concept called subitism. Does anybody know what subitism is? Sudden huh? Sudden. Sudden enlightenment. Yeah, you remembered it from last time? All right. So, subitism is sudden enlightenment. And um, in this, let me read a couple of things for you on, on that. And that's that you can come to, to an enlightenment, you know, it, there's no, there's no time frame like you know you're going through to get your master's degree or your doctorate or whatever, where you go if you do this then you get your your degree. There's there's nothing like that. It could happen at it, at any given time. Um, contemplating. But you still have to put your time in. In the poem, contemplating mind. I'll read you two parts on this one. This is a Chan poem. It says, Look upon the body as unreal, an image in a mirror, the reflection of the moon in the water. Now, the moon in Chinese uh, um, culture represents the mind. So they say the mind in the water. So if you look at the moon, is that the real moon that's there? So. They say, contemplate the mind as formless, yet bright and pure. This is your illumination. And it does work that way. So in one part it says, in a critical moment, bring back the light, powerfully illuminating. Clouds disperse, the sky is clear, and the sun shines brilliantly. This is a state of Chan where somebody has seen their true nature. And... and they're using these analogies. Don't try to copy those analogies and say, I was there and all of a sudden this shaft of life came down and it shined on me. You know, and I go, no, that was aliens. <laughs> okay, but in life. So, so anyway, in this part, it's saying the, the sun shines brilliantly. It's just everything is illuminated. Imagine somebody had, had sent me something uh, from that the movie Lucy. Did you see the movie Lucy? How many saw the movie Lucy? Raise your hand. Only a few. I can't use that analogy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
but but anyway, in, in that movie, this person had taken some kind of a drug that enabled them to, to see everything clearly and see things that were happening. And and imagine if you could do that. But you can. You can do that if you practice hard and and you see the subtle shifts. You can you can detect these subtle shifts of things that that are the potentiality of, of, of what could happen in any given moment. The only problem is that we can't see that normally because we're too caught up in the moment with ourselves. But if there's no self there, we can say, oh, this is happening, this is happening, these people are doing this, and whatever it is. And so we're, we can do that. And this is this illumination of the mind. You're not going to go there and, and you know go down the line and high five everybody, you know, pusa, No, you're not going to do that. It, it's not that way. It's just that you're going to see how everything works. So let's see what Master Shen Yang said about the sudden illumination. Sudden enlightenment may be abrupt, but it's not easy to attain. It's terribly naive to believe that it can happen without genuine cultivation. Without the methods of Chan guided by principle or practical wisdom, one will practice blindly and be misled by wayward ideas. So this is very important that we have to understand right view. If we understand right view, we have a chance at it, at least. At least we know that we can do that. But if we don't have right view, we have no chance whatsoever. And so he's saying, don't be misled by wayward things. There's, there's people, even here in, in the United States, you know, that are selling enlightenment for $10,000 a pop. You know, I, I don't think... I don't, remember the person's name it rhymes with Chopra I think and um, <laughs> but anyway there's people that that are commercializing the practice and making a great deal of money on it and people are going there and signing up for these programs no um, and but it doesn't work that way it doesn't work that way we've got to put together and, and see the things clearly ourselves. We have to do it. Nobody's going to hand us out a certificate. And if they do, run. And don't pay for it for any... Please do not pay for that. You can support here, but, you know, if I'm charging you $100 for this lecture, which is actually worth a lot more than that, but, <laughs> but if I charge you that, you know, don't go. Okay? That's not where you go. And that's why he's saying, from all these wayward people that do that, because some, some people in, in Taiwan were that way, but now there's a lot of people here that have are selling, selling Zen, you know, and so don't do that. Um, and, and so the whole idea here is where he's saying is, in Buddhism there is a worldly knowledge and transcendent knowledge. Um, that is... Also, the boundless wisdom, samyak sambodhi, of the Buddhas of the highest attainment. This is the stainless, formless wisdom of the Buddhas. Chan practitioners on the path rely on this supreme source and guidance of 
ancestral Chan masters. We take the words of the Buddha and the Chan masters as our guide on the path and as a mirror of our own mind. We feel secure in relying on these methods. With them we investigate our true nature and resolve the great questions of impermanence, the nature of mind, and enlightenment. And that's what we do. So in the Heart Sutra, they talked about uh, attaining what type of, um, of wisdom? Do you remember what it's called? You know? Anyatara Samyak Sambodhi. Okay. The highest perfected wisdom. So this highest perfected wisdom, in fact, is not wisdom at all. It's compassion, as evidenced by Kuan Bodhisattva. It, it's beyond that. There's, at that point, we talk about delivering sentient beings of a non-sentient nature. None of that is. It's all mine at that point. So that there is no wisdom there. So as we begin to look at that, all those things that look like they don't make sense anymore, all of a sudden make sense. And so we have to study and we have to begin to practice. And as we begin to do this, we find that that all of these notions, all of these things that these masters are saying, they all fit together. They have their own way of saying it. Ling Chi is very, very brash. Um, Shen Yun is, is, is very methodical. Han Shan is, is, has a lot of exhortation. He really wants to push you to do it. You know, Lin Chi says, if you don't do this this way, boom, you're, you're gone. You know, and he's very, he has, he has uh, no patience with any fools. And, and so they all have their own interest, uh, interesting personalities in how they, they do it, but they're all very good. And in the end, you can sew them all together and they fit perfectly. So that's what I wanted to do today, is give you a taste of some of them from modern masters to the ancient masters and to, to from the poems. And so you can see how they kind of fit together. And, and when you start reading these, you go, oh, I see. It's not that you read this and you say, okay, this was his work. You see how it's tied in historically and philosophically. And once you do that, it brings it to life. And then you, you see it so clearly that it's no longer words on a page. There was one master that uh, had a student that really wanted to get it, but he couldn't get it and he couldn't get it. And so he finally told the, the master, I'm not getting it. And so the master said, okay, go with so-and-so. And so he went with another master and then he came back and he knocked on the door and, and the master was there reading his scrolls of, of the sutras. And, he, and the young monk came in and he said, what a pity, you're, you, you know, talking to his master, he says, you're looking for the answer on the words uh, on the scroll when the answer is three feet beyond that. And, and uh, if you looked at the magic art pictures, that's what you have to do. You have to look three feet beyond the picture and then you focus and that comes into focus. It, it's not within the picture itself. And so in terms of, of just looking at it, there's a method there. And so what he was telling his master, you'll never get it that way. You have to be able to contemplate. Any questions? No. Then tomorrow we, those of you who come, come and we'll, we'll keep that. Join palms.
Two in the back, and we'll put them in the back. Do you have a card? Huh? Do you 